Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Whaling in New Bedford, Massachusetts, the home of Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick, is our topic today. Our guest is Michael Dyer, the senior historian at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. The Whaling Museum reveals the lives of the largest mammals on Earth. Its social history collection shares the monumental stories of those who spent their human lives whaling at sea between the New England coast and halfway around the world, as well as their families who yearned for their return. How the seamen lived at sea, to the captains and owners of the sailing vessels and all those in between as well as the economics of the whale oil that lit and lubricated the Industrial Revolution. In part one of our series on whaling, I met with Mike Dyer at the New Bedford Whaling Museum on September 2, 2016. To put matters into perspective, we began when I asked him to describe the sperm whale. Sperm whales are uh, unique creatures. They, uh, they're odontocetes, they're toothed whales. They're the largest of the toothed whales. They're deep diving animals. Uh, in their head, in their nose, they have an extremely complicated nose. Uh, and it's filled with a fluid that's uh, termed spermaceti. And this fluid aids their physiology and their, their life habits in a complex variety of ways. They're deep diving animals, they, it assists in buoyancy, it assists in, in, uh, in deep water pressure um, controls, it amplifies and uh, targets sonic emissions that the animals make, uh, which is how they communicate and how they hunt in the deep ocean in the dark. Um, but it, uh, it, but it, its chemical makeup is a wax, and their entire body is wrapped in a layer of blubber, and uh, the the oil that's in their blubber is also classified as a wax. Uh, but it is a almost unique substance in nature. And what is it uh, that we know now generally about the communication between whales? That they make a whole variety of sounds, and uh, and that they have complex social structures, and that they uh, defend their young, and uh, that uh, you know land animals are relatively easy to observe. So you know you can observe the behavior of muskox, or you can observe the behavior of elephants, and, uh, and correlate some of that behavior when you take the time to observe uh, social structures of sperm whales or, uh, or other whales. What is the difference between a right whale and a sperm whale? Um, the mysticetes are the whalebone whales. Well, there are four species, uh, but two main genus. So the Eubelina glacialis in the North Atlantic and uh, Eubelina mysticitis, which is the bowhead. So you have the bowhead whale, and then there's the creature that we've come to call the right whale. Uh, which is a complete misnomer. Um, whalemen called them uh, black whales, uh, Nord cappers, 
Sometimes they call them right whales. But these animals have, uh, have bone in their mouth. So they have baleen, long uh, plates of baleen. Uh, it's not as long and it's not as good as the baleen that's in the mouth of a bowhead whale, which was in fact the right whale of commerce, which are fat and slow and make a lot of oil and uh, are docile and easy to kill. Um, right whales, you know, Eubelina glacialis, are, uh, and actually the really dangerous one is Eubelina japonica, or the North Pacific uh, right whale. That was the most dangerous whale fishery uh, that there was. Dangerous how? Oh god, the animals are just, well the weather was terrible on the northwest coast of North America, and the animals are just mean, they're mean, and uh, you know, hunting them was a dangerous occupation. And so, you know, the, the right whale fishery on the northwest coast was extremely profitable, extremely damaging to the animal populations, uh, because these are big, fat whales. I mean, they, were, they, were, they were big, uh, jet black, uh, with long bone and, uh, and, and big, fat bodies. Um, but so often they would sink when they were, uh, when they were killed, and, uh, and that's the ones that didn't destroy boats or kill the crew uh, as, they're, as they're whaling. So, uh, you know, the, the Northwest Coast whale fishery was a very profitable but very dangerous place. So, sperm whales periodically wash ashore, and humankind, uh, Western Europeans, uh, as far as North America is concerned, Western Europeans became familiar with sperm whales because these animals would, would strand on the shores of Holland and, and, uh, and elsewhere, and, and people knew that you know you could cut into the carcass of this animal and, and get uh, and get valuable uh, stuff from the carcass. It was not until the middle part of the 18th century, really, maybe a little bit earlier than that, that American colonists began to extend their shoreside whaling uh, voyages offshore into the deep water where sperm whales live uh, and to hunt sperm whales. And what enabled that to happen was, a, uh, was a, an innovation called the triworks. And a triworks is a brick furnace with two big pots in it and it sits on a, in a pan of water on the deck of the vessel. And when a sperm whale is killed and the blubber is stripped off and cut up and chopped up into chunks and thrown into the pots, you light a fire under the pots and boil all the oil out of the blubber. That oil is then siphoned off into wooden casks and the casks are stowed below decks and away they go, looking for the next sperm whale. When you say the oil is boiled off of the blubber, it doesn't evaporate, it separates That's from right. the blubber. That's right, blubber just like bacon in a pan. Just like bacon in a pan. So uh, there's, there's body oil and then there's head matter. And they are two, they were marketed separately and they were processed separately ashore. Uh, the head matter was the most uh, valuable stuff. What was the value of the head matter? Uh, it fluctuated, uh, you know, as market commodities fluctuate. After the Civil War, uh, it was at its height, uh, and that was about uh, $2 a gallon. And that was for the uh, spermaceti? Yeah. And that's a 
a finer oil than what is reduced from the blubber? It's not a finer oil, it's different. Um, How is it, it different? Well, when it comes into contact with the air, it'll solidify. And so it turns into a wax, a solid wax. But if it's processed, if it's refined, uh, the spermaceti, when it's chilled and packed in bags, it can be put under a super high pressure um, uh, press. And, uh, and then at that point, some very fine oil does come out of it, but it goes through a number of pressings, which at that point then what you're left with is a rock solid block of wax uh, that can then be heated and uh, poured into candle molds and made into spermaceti candles. And you know that was the that was the creme de la creme of the of the whaling industry was the spermaceti candle. Uh, those things were you know they they sold for uh, more than a dollar a candle. And the oils from the whale were used as you just described for light and also for lubrication and at the beginning of the industrial revolution. Sperm oil was primarily used for lighting. A lot of it went into the lighthouse trade. So, uh, sperm oil, properly refined, would burn regularly and cleanly. Uh, when a wick was set into a gallon of perfectly refined spermaceti or sperm oil uh, and lit, it would burn perfectly and provide a brilliant light. And so that uh, that sperm oil went into uh, went into the lighthouse trade. It also went into uh, domestic lighting, but it was expensive. Uh, sperm oil is not for everybody. Uh, you had to be able to afford it. And uh, the same thing with sperm city candles; they were expensive too. So sperm oil, uh, you know, sperm oil lighting and uh, and sperm city candles were a high-end product. Whale oil. Doesn't, it smells bad when it burns, and it's uh, not a clean burning uh, oil. It, it smokes. Even when it's properly refined, it's still not really suitable for indoor domestic lighting. Um, it, was, it was pretty good for street lighting. It was pretty good for outdoor lighting. Uh, and you could burn it indoors, but it, uh, but it, didn't, it wasn't really a, a finely, uh, cleanly burning oil. Let's talk about how the whale was killed, who did it, how they got to sea, how they brought back the usable parts of the animal, and, and the size of this enormous creature. Hmm. Well, sperm whales can vary uh, anywhere from you know, 20 feet in length uh, to uh, close to 90. Gigantic sperm whales are almost 90 feet long. And whale, whalers measured them in barrels, so a calf might be you know, might only make five barrels of oil, whereas a, a big sperm oil uh, could make a hundred barrels. And that's how whalemen understood the sperm oil. When we say barrel, uh, what is the volume of the barrel? 31 and a half gallons. So a 90-foot whale would be how many barrels? It would be over a hundred barrels. So staying with the process of killing the whale, um, I understand that the boat that uh, uh, the whalers went on was about 30 feet long. That's right, yep. Uh, that's pretty small in comparison to the size of the whale. The animal most commonly uh, sought after was a 40-barrel whale. 
Um, it was about 40, uh, 45 feet long. And so the boat, while it seems small, it actually evolved into its size over many, many generations of whaling. And it was absolutely, it was the perfect boat. It was the perfect craft for what it needed to do. Uh, its planking was made out of white cedar, uh, Atlantic white cedar, and the interior parts were made out of white oak uh, and white pine. And these boats uh, carried six men and uh, two, one or two tubs of line, 3,000 feet of line, uh, which is three-quarter inch uh, manila whale line or hemp. You know, early, in the early days it was hemp line, and then as soon as the opportunity came to replace the hemp line with, with something better, um, uh, Whaleman absolutely did it. Um, there was a you know, New Bedford Cordage Company in, opened in New Bedford, I think, 1842 or uh, 43, and uh, they twisted up a manila whale line. So a whale line is coiled down in the tubs and Flemish coils very carefully perfectly, flawlessly coiled into the tubs. There are, uh, and attached to that line are two harpoons, what they call live irons. Um, so there are two live irons, and uh, they, one is attached directly to the whale line, and the other is attached uh, loosely or indirectly to the whale line, so that if one uh, harpoon should uh, should pull, the other one will will remain in place. So it was a kind of a, a safety net as far as the uh, the harpoons themselves are concerned. Can we pause here yeah, for a sure. moment? In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with uh, Mike Dyer, who's the senior maritime historian at the New Bedford Whaling Museum, and you're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Um, Mike, let's talk about how the whale was killed. You know, as we were talking about the whale boat with the two live irons, you know, so the, the boat goes on to the whale, and, and when I say the boat goes on to the whale, I mean wood to black skin. I mean, the boat is bumping up against the side of the whale when the harpooner stands up, grabs his harpoons, and plants them into the blubber of the animal. So they physically make contact with the hand of the harpooner on the harpoon. Well, the harpoon, the harpoon, the harpoon is it? a... Is a, is, a, is a wrought iron shaft uh, with a point on the end. By the uh, early 1850s, that harpoon head had, had evolved into a, into a uh, toggling harpoon head, so it would twist open once it was actually stuck into the blubber. So you've got a, you have a, a wrought iron shaft that was designed to bend. And that shaft has a socket on the end, and into the socket goes a tree branch. Hickory, white oak, some tough uh, tree branch, um, generally with the bark on. The handle of the harpoon uh, is, uh, if, if you lost the handle of the harpoon, didn't matter. Just, that wasn't the important part. The important part was the, was the shaft of the head with the socket on it. As long as that stayed in the whale, you were in business. So. So they, they uh, stick the whale with harpoon, yep. and the whale takes off. Yep. Stick the and, whale with harpoons, and the whale takes off. And how do they then subdue the whale? So the whale's pulling those beautifully coiled flakes of line out of the tubs, 
it goes, those line goes around the, the, the oak logger head in the stern of the boat, so the entire boat acts like a fishing rod. The whole boat is being towed along, and the men are in the boat. And this is the 30-foot boat this is with six men. Boat. Yeah, 30-foot boat with six guys. And the men, when the whale is taken off uh, and pulling line, they just sort of hold on for dear life, and they're getting towed along in the classic Nantucket sleigh rod. And uh, as the whale tires, then they pull on the line, all six of them are hauling on the line, pulling the boat up to the whale, and when they get close enough, then the, the guy who's steering the boat, the boat header, the officer, the most experienced whaleman on board, and the, and the man who planted the harpoons actually switch places. So they clamber over their crew members, and they clamber over the whale line, and they clamber over all the gear, and they switch places, and then the, the, the officer is in the bow, and he takes a tool called a lance. And a lance is similar to a harpoon uh, in, its, in its general construction, except it doesn't have a point at the tip. It has a blade at the tip. And uh, this, this officer, the most experienced whaleman in the boat, will take that lance and he will seek out the, part, the anatomy of the whale above the shoulder blade above and behind the shoulder blade, above the fin, and, uh, and stick the lance in there and try to sever the arteries around the heart and the lungs uh, to, to, uh, to, to kill the animal. And uh, that's how whaling was done. And uh, the, the lance had a, had, a, had a line attached to it, so sometimes the, uh, the, uh, the boat header could, could hurl the lance. Uh, very often he um, and it was super sharp. I mean, the thing was super sharp. If he did throw it like a like a javelin, it would penetrate. Um, and then he could grab the line and just pull it right back out again and keep doing that. So it's not like a harpoon. It's a harpoon is designed to stay in the whale. A lance is designed to go in and out. So the length of time, pruning of the whale until the lance is uh, placed and the whale is uh, taking off on the Nantucket sleigh ride. Uh, how long does that take? For the whale to tire? It depends. It depends on the whale. On, on the animal, but on an average? There is no average. It depends entirely on the animal. I mean, there are accounts of whales being killed when the harpoon was planted. There, there are stories of whales that towed boats over the horizon and they were never seen again. Uh, you know, a whale could take an hour to kill, it could take four hours to kill. Uh, six hours could go by and and the whale could still be fighting, and at which point the crew would, would need to uh, use a shoulder gun, which was a big, heavy, looks like a small cannon uh, that was handheld and would fire a, an exploding projectile into the whale to try to kill the thing um, if it fought back too hard. So there is no, there is no easy answer to that, uh, Barry. It depends entirely on the animal, on the conditions of the sea, the quality of the whaleman, quality of the tools that they use, the quality of the whale line, because whale lines could snap, or harpoons could pull loose. So, I mean, there really is no, uh, no average. How is it that they get the whale to the ship after they've been harpooned and killed? When the officer, when the boat header has actually you know, killed, killed the animal, it, uh, it, it, it spouts blood. And uh, the whaleman had a phrase, they would say, his, his chimney's a fire. Uh, or they uh, set his chimney afire. 
And that means that the, that the animal is, is spouting uh, clots, thick clots of blood. And, and, and whalemen had, you know, they had, had a number of different phrases for this. So, you know, if a whale was spouting thin blood, he wasn't dead yet. And if he was spouting thick blood, he was, uh, he was about to die. And when he turned fin out, so when the animal actually died and turned over on its side and its fin was sticking up in the air, uh, that was a dead animal. Um, very often before a whale would turn fin out, um, he would go into what, what they call his flurry. And that was a, uh, just before he died, he would just thrash around like crazy. Uh, and then he would turn fin out and die. How did they get the, the whale out of the water up onto the ship? Well, you wouldn't actually hoist the, the, the carcass out of the water. So this is one of the innovations of uh, Yankee sperm whaling, and that is that on the whaler itself were a number of very heavy blocks and uh, very heavy uh, what they call tackles or, or uh, thick, thick rope. And attached to that thick rope and those big blocks would be a heavy uh, wrought iron hook and uh, the whale once it was brought to the ship would be tied up by its tail uh, and then the carcass would float free alongside the ship and the uh, the men generally an officer uh, sometimes uh, an experienced seaman would go over the side of the ship uh, and uh, again they would have to cut a hole in the blubber and, and this guy would have a rope around his waist and, uh, and somebody on the deck would be, have a hold of the rope to keep this guy from drowning. And the guy would go over the side of the ship onto the back of the whale and fit that hook into the hole that was cutting the carcass. Once that blubber hook is in the hole, then the, the thick heavy ropes that go through the blocks go forward. They go through a series of blocks and they go forward to a giant windlass, a giant winch that's mounted in the bow of the ship. And this winch uh, is turned around by the least experienced crew members on board, these same green hands, these same guys whose job was to pull oars, <coughs> excuse me, their, uh, their job was to, uh, to turn the windlass as well. And they would just crank this windlass and the lines would pull tight and the officers would stand on the side of the ship with big, long cutting spades, which is similar to a boat spade, but bigger. And, uh, and would, they would chop into the blubber uh, a piece about three feet or four feet wide. And, uh, and as the men at the windlass pull the lines tight, the men with the cutting spades are chopping into the blubber and the blubber would just tear right off the, the meat of the animal. And, uh, and the animal would, the carcass then is, is rotating in the water as this blanket piece of blubber is, is torn up and pulled tight and, uh, and brought on board. And, uh, and you just keep alternating the, the hook and another kind of a, of a, of a blubber toggle uh, between the, so that the, uh, so that as one blanket piece comes is ready to, to come on board. The next one is prepared, uh, and uh, and it just you, know, you just keep rotating um, the carcass uh, until all the blubber is on board. And then, once the blubber is on board, if it's a sperm whale, 
Then you have to deal with the spermaceti. Then you have to deal with the head. And very often, the very first operation, after the blubber hook is inserted into the blubber, is to cut the head off. So the, the spermaceti in the head of a sperm whale is the most valuable part of the animal. And so the head would be left uh, to float alongside to be processed later. So they get the body in first, and then they cut in the head. And uh, the way that worked was if it's a big sperm whale, the head would be sort of manipulated through blocks and, and tackles and, uh, and, uh, and a hole would be uh, cut in the head and then a, a big, long, narrow, heavy uh, bucket. It's an odd-looking thing. It's, it's about three feet long and about, uh, about a foot across, and it's got a very heavy bottom to it, bullet-shaped bottom. And that bucket would be dropped into the hole that was cut in the head, and with a long pole, you sort of poke it down in, and you just bail out the spermaceti out of the head. You bail all the liquid spermaceti out of the head, and then you have to chop up the head because the, the head itself uh, has a very valuable material uh, that makes up the case. Uh, the case uh, is a gristly, oily material that, that, uh, that is the anatomy of the nose of a sperm whale. It's the gross anatomy of the nose is this, is this, uh, is this, this gristly material uh, or the, that, that, that surrounds the spermaceti organ in which the liquid uh, is, uh, is. And, uh, and that, that liquid is, is, is bailed out and put into casks. Sometimes it goes right into casks raw. Sometimes if there's water in it or other material, it'll be put into the triworks and just very, very flash cooked, uh, very fast, very hot to try to cook off any, any impurities. And then, it's, and then it's ladled into the casks. And, uh, and the casks you know, are, are the, then identified by the cooper. So every whaler has a cooper on board and his job is to set up the casks and maintain the casks uh, of oil because you know you don't want your oil to all leak out. There's no point in that. So you need a highly skilled uh, craftsman on board and a cooper. You can't go whaling Yankee style without a cooper. So he was a very important man on board. He made a good rate of pay and, uh, and, uh, and the cooper uh, would make certain that the uh, that the casks were all set up, and that once ones are filled with with oil, body oil, B for body, um, and, uh, and the other casks were marked with H for head. This has been part one of our series on whaling. Our guest is Michael Dyer, the senior historian at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in New Bedford, Massachusetts. The book that Mike Dyer recommends is Marine Mammals of the Northwestern Coast of North America by Charles Melville Scammon. This program was recorded on September 2, 2016 at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, 
radiocurious.org with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541, and the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.